You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Here's what's coming up on this edition of Next Big Trade. Enjoy the show. I believe that we're heading into something more akin to Great Depression of 1930s. And what makes me think about this is there's also issues in Europe and China. So it's like all the major economies synchronously are descending into some problems. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the next big trade. I'm your host, Harry Malandri from MI2 Partners. On this program, I'll talk to some of the world's foremost traders about current trends in markets and what they believe is a smart bet. We'll hear about their career journeys and, of course, find out what they're targeting as their next big trade. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the next big trade. Thanks for joining us. Um, This week, I'm lucky enough to be talking to Alex Gurevich. Um, Alex is the founder and CIO of Honte Investments. Um, He has over 20 years' experience trading, including running JP Morgan's uh, macro prop before he set up his own shop. Alex, it's a great pleasure to speak to you again. How's it going? It's a pleasure to be on. It feels like it's been a while since I've been on Real Vision, so it's a pleasure to have a fun conversation here. Thank you. Well, you're prejudging, mate. There's not, it's not guaranteed to be fun. I know you're going by my chubby features, but I think you're right. It's probably going to be fun, probably. So, well, first of all, my, my first silly question for you is, what's it like having the journal describe you as the star trader of J.P. Morgan in 2003? Everyone in J.P. Morgan must have absolutely hated you. You know, it was not just that. It was a little disturbing at the moment because it was not a sanctioned article, so there was some kind of leak. Oh, okay. It was like basically none. J.P. Morgan did almost no comments to the journalists who reached out to them about that. And my first reaction was like to just not talk to the press. You know, that's that puts a completely different complexion on it because it means somebody else in J.P. Morgan described you as a star trader. And that's that's way better. That's way better than, you know, like the last thing I would ever do is describe myself as a star trader because of all the evidence against. <laughs> well, the problem is that every time you describe yourself as a star trader, that's usually a precursor for really bad P&L months. Absolutely. It's, it's got to be a comically brave thing to do. Yes, so that was... <laughs> That was definitely, I don't know who invented all those terms. There were also like speculations on how much money we're making and all this stuff, which is right. very vague and kind of weird. But I don't know, my parents liked it. Oh, your parents? Oh, that's important. You got to cut it out and put it in this scrap album. Yes. And is it my imagination? Is your PhD in elliptical curves? It's an uh, elliptic partial differential equations, not curves. Ah, not curves. curves in a very different field of math. That would be algebraic geometry. I was an analysis. Right. I was going to say, why aren't you a cryptographer or something like that now, if you did elliptical curves? But I think even now that they've moved, everyone's moved on from cryptography and elliptical curves. They've got other methods of doing it now. So why don't we talk about trading? Because uh, I hear you trade. And in particular, this is a podcast where we kind of ask people what the next big trade is. And I have a feeling, because sometimes we can't get people to really focus on an, a trade itself. I don't think we're going to have that trouble with you this time around. I think you're going to actually focus on the trade. So 
So what is the next big trade? What's the investment thesis? I think I would like to be like very funky and original and just to, or do something really complex and do this. Let's like sell this spread versus that spread and like bring up a few terms that nobody's ever heard about. But honestly, I think it should just be long bonds. Anywhere in the world, especially U.S. Treasury bonds or uh, Stalin bonds or whatever, long duration, you have to be maximum long duration. I think we are at the beginning of the mother of all bull markets in duration. And I'm not saying it easily because we just had a 40-year bull market in duration. Yeah, we, we did. And it ended. Yeah, yeah. That, that was quite a correction to a 40-year downtrend in rates. Interesting, we just broke. If you look at some of the log charts, we just broke, like, I think log 10s. We broke the log 10s and log 2s, which is kind of interesting. We broke, and now we've broken back below those long-term trends, so it looks like a big head, head fake. But, um, yeah, walk us through your investment thesis, because, I mean, it's not, David Rosenberg was on the podcast. He had roughly the same idea. I'm enormously sympathetic to this. I have some caveats or quibbles, but I, I, I struggle to, yeah, I mean, I'm going to struggle to argue with you on this hypothesis. So walk us through why, why you feel this way. So first of all, this is one assumption that I'm going to lay out. And I think most people actually agree with it. Almost nobody agrees with no economists or traders argue with this, that inflation that we see is product of variety of financial, monetary, and fiscal conditions that existed one or two years ago. That is, the current inflation is not... So inflation does not work like the Fed raised rate 75 basis points and inflation numbers are lower next month. We have, when we are seeing a high inflation print, what does this print tell us? It tells us two years ago, the financial, fiscal, and monetary conditions were too loose. And indeed, Arguably, they were to lose in 2020. We had incredible amount of fiscal and monetary stimulus, and that's when stock markets started to rally, and they were rallying for a year and a half very strongly. So we had all those conditions that and dollar was relatively weak, all those conditions that actually potentially create inflation, create, create increase in money supply, all of those stuff was there. So it's no wonder that we're seeing high inflation. So for the last few months, we saw high inflation than people, including myself, anticipated. What does it tell us? It, tell, it tells us that those conditions two years ago were even more loose than we thought they were. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. So, uh, you know, uh, normally I don't, I don't push back as much as I... In this particular case, I'll push back a little bit because I, I agree with the idea that the monetary and fiscal conditions of two years ago were important. Uh, production, supply-side conditions of six months ago are also important. Um, and in fact underinvestment in key resources has been a factor in limiting supply-side responses. So all of that's true. My one quibble would be that I think you could probably observe something about the relative effectiveness of fiscal versus monetary policy. Um, monetary policy, I think, 
is less effective than a whole bunch of fiscal. And I think people were surprised by how how stimulative, you know, 20% or 15% of GDP injected via the fiscal process can be. Because, you know, it, it hits directly into the economy and then it goes into financial markets as well as if it was monetary. If you, if you do a fiscal stimulus, you've probably got fiscal and monetary stimulus is happening. So I suspect one of the things we just learned was fiscal really worked if you choose to do it. And we just hadn't choose to do it for a long time. I don't disagree with this at all. Indeed, we had a lot of monetary experiments, even though like I like to say that history is not an experimental science. You cannot just try to see two exact same conditions to see what happens if we do this, what happens if we do that. We kind of only can do it in a very oblique way, try to understand, compare different historical examples, but comparisons are never perfect. Mm -hmm. So, however, indeed, uh, this fiscal stimulus was kind of unprecedented and it did work and it did create inflation. And it did create inflation, honestly, like when people were like, oh, it's not creating inflation in 2020. We should have all known inflation lags. And yes, supply, the war, that all exaggerated it, but it's, you can always kind of like wrap it up all in the same package. If people don't work a lot and don't produce a lot of stuff, and however, given a lot of money, simple supply demand low, leads to the point that stuff becomes more expensive. Now, we could not foresee exactly how the supply bottlenecks will develop and work. Honestly, I was only concerned about supply bottlenecks back in 2020 when it was shut down. I didn't realize that that in itself will be a really lagging problem. So I was also miscalculated that stuff quite a bit. But in some sense, it's part of the same equation. So now we have learned that that stuff was all led to high inflation, which we observed with our eyes. Now, the most ridiculous, however, this is when I go the ridiculous thing to do is to see, say, oh, inflation is high today, therefore the policy should be X, Y, Z today. That's actually taking the clues from today's inflation for what today's policy should be is completely disjointed and, in my opinion, insane. Mm -hmm. Because that inflation is linked not to the policy now, but to the policy two years from now. In fact, in a short horizon, raising interest rates is actually inflationary, not deflationary, because it only exacerbates supply pro problems. You raise rates, it's harder to fund infrastructure, start new projects that would resolve supply problems. Now, there are ways in which it's supposed to bring inflation down, tightening monetary situation by killing demand eventually. Exactly. So I kind of had a, I kind of have an issue with fighting inflation this way because uh, from the very beginning, I wrote an article about this uh, a few months ago to tell people, well, people, you're already suffering. Like, why inflation is bad? Because it's hard for people to buy stuff. You go to people and say, like, well, it's hard for you to buy stuff. How are we going to help you? Well, we're going to help you by taking away your money so it's even harder for you to buy stuff. And then the prices will come down. Yeah, but it, 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 you're not going to argue that it works. It definitely works if you take the money away. It's a medieval kind of medicine, though. <laughs> well, not all medicine tastes as good as we might like. Yes, but I just don't, I, I honestly don't know. And I generally not the one to be bashing the Fed and saying they're doing everything wrong, but uh, this the current policy approach honestly was to me befuddling and it reflected at me having like a little struggle navigating markets because I just did not really see that path. I didn't see why they would raise rates. I didn't see why they were introducing balance sheet last year why they took so long to start uh, tapering and reducing balance sheet. 
while they had a chance to reduce balance sheet and why they would start reducing balance sheet when it's already too late to do that and why they would raise rates so aggressively to fight the problems that were existing two years ago. So none of it makes really sense to me. If I were going to try and answer, and, you know, I don't know either. Right? I only know what I... What well, there's I, some politics involved, and maybe they see things differently, yes. I'm, but what I'm saying, like, I was a little befuddled by that. But I think the picture now is clear to me, and I'm feeling I'm having the grasp, and market is confirming my picture. It's not like I'm no longer, like, a contrarian person mumbling something to myself in the dark corner. So, <laughs> so, so let's say let's let's start with uh, accepting this thesis that current inflation is a product of and economic conditions are product of what happened to over the last two years. Now let's see what is going to be the inflation two years. What what are the inputs for the inflation that's going to be two years from now? What are we having now? Very rapid rise in interest rates. We had a reduction of balance sheet. And by the way, reduction in balance sheet started even before the actual reduction started because when we have because we had inflation, so relative to as monetary basis inflating, once they tapered and stopped buying more bonds, balance sheet started to be nominally smaller and smaller portion of the GDP. So balance sheet started to be less and less already. And I'm I'm a little bit of two minds whether that can be counted as tightening or not. It's a complex issue, but that would definitely tightening on that side too. Fiscal impulse is negative, right? Because we definitely turn taking away all the stimulus. Yeah. There might be some stimulus, but and again, you could argue whether it's like less stimulus or is it negative, right? What matters is that you do you see what I'm saying? No, it's it's definitely the relative shift shift in the stance. So this is something economists have no problem with. You talk to anybody who's you know in a policy background, and they'll tell you if you had a, a trillion dollars of fiscal last year and you go to no fiscal this year, that means you have a, a trillion dollars of fiscal tightening or or, or tightening in in fiscal policy. So it's it's definitely going to contract GDP year on year. It would seem like that, right? So we're having tightening of fiscal policy. What most people would say, I'm a little bit. Not so clear on this, but I'm just laying laying it out for you. Sure. Then, then we have asset prices. What's going on with asset prices? We had a very significant correction on stock market. We having real estate market clearly kind of stalling a bit. It's still good, and we had a correction and and hard assets, being this precious metals or crypto, all either fell or stalled. Right. Mm-hmm. That's and. I'm not going to talk about, I'm going to talk about other commodities in a second, and I'll explain you why I'm going to talk about this, not in this pile, but next. Uh, all of those, we, if you think of those leading indicators, are negative, and in this, and, and probably the broader thing is dollar is stronger. Now, U.S. economy is generally not as beholden to dollar strength in terms of the inflation numbers it shows, but it's more than nothing. Mm-hmm. It's it's probably minor compared to some other economies, but it's it's something rather than nothing. I think that's right. So what are all of those what I call like a five pronged attack uh, attack on growth and inflation. Now, the big counter argument, the devil's advocate argument here is, what if it's not enough? Like, why do you think that three percent uh, rates are high if inflation is six percent? A lot of people are saying, why Fed is not taking rates to eight percent if inflation is eight percent? Now, to me, this is nonsense, but legitimate people legitimately have a legitimate question to ask there, right? Uh, one of the most counter-arguments is to look to real rates and see that real rates going forward already positive in the sense that 
the projected inflation is already below the actual yields on on treasuries. And I think this economy cannot sustain positive real rates. Uh, that's a that's a separate thing. But why I see, let's flip this and say like, how do we know that those measures are getting traction, that those tightening getting traction? Well, in a little bit circular way, uh, we can say, well, the asset price fall is one sign that it's getting traction. The commodity prices, a lot of commodities at pre-war levels, which spiked in the war, like how did they get wheat price down? It's really, that that's where I'm befuddled because fertilizers are still missing. The global hunger is still on the horizon, but uh, the wheat prices, as far as I understand, are like at pre-war levels. But a lot of commodities, including copper or whatever, they all got that signal. They're all signaling that the tightening got traction. Now, one of the strongest counter arguments is that we're going to have entrenched wage inflation, that, that the wage inflation already started and it's going to be hard to unwind it. Honestly, I don't have a good answer to that because a lot of that is political, because there is going to be like a political chop on in that direction because there will be like raise of minimal wages here and there. There will be various benefits, maybe. I don't know. There will be something on that side. These unionizations going on. So there will be some pressure on that side. But what makes me think that you cannot any you can but I, I don't think you can anymore argue that job market is red hot and unstoppable. We're seeing strong indications that the market is at least leveling. How do we know it? Well we now had several months of initial jobless claims data, which is usually the most leading data, and those very steadily turned the trend and started started to creep up. Two hundred fifty thousand a week is still a very low level, but that yeah. it's not like one week spike. It went up from the level of like 170, 180 per week, which is record low. And if you look at that trend, there is a very clear traction there. So at least job market is not uniformly strong anymore. You cannot say like everything in the job market points out that it's hot. And then you could kind of start building the story that people with during great resignation, people are beginning to regret quitting their job. Now they're going to go back and maybe not find as many jobs. Because during COVID, actually, companies learned to deal with less people. And now that people started to demand higher salaries, maybe they will not pay them higher salaries. To me, that picture is still mixed. But I, heard, I see so many indicators, so many indicators that all those measures are getting traction. So that does not tell me anything about what the next inflation print is or where it's even going to be to, to the, towards the end of 2022. For all I know, it will still be very high. Yeah. But they tell me a lot about where it might be one or two years from now. And now like, let's go to, to the kind of a little more like a policy thing. The Fed seems to be determined to react to actual inflation numbers. Like they saw high inflation numbers and they hiked more. To me, this is ridiculous, but that's what, and, and I'll maybe get back to why I think they're doing this and where is the meta argument there. They are hiking in response to that inflationary numbers. Now, if you think like very simply, I, I don't think, I think that's smarter than that, but if you think in a very simple logic, they're gonna hike rate till inflation falls to 2%. What do you, like imagine that that, that is their formula. They're going to hike 75 basis points till inflation goes to 2% year on year. What do you think the result is going to be? Well, cat catastrophic. Yeah, one would, one would think. One would think. Yeah. yeah. So because there is no way once it starts going from 9% to 2%, there's no way it's going to level off and stop. So I think 
they basically soft lending is kind of off the table because they're not gonna see meaningful change in employment so inflation is very lagging and employment is also lagging if they're gonna go by those indicators and they seem to be determined to go by them they clearly will be like way behind the curve they will keep hiking when they should already be easy which i think like right now they should already be easy they're already at the stage that the correct policy would be to take rates back down to zero but they they will do it but with a lag which is kind of unprecedented because normally when they're with this far on the cycle it would be easy so that's make me think and because they're still tightening and the balance sheet is still running off and all the other things are still happening that i mentioned i believe that we're heading into something more akin to great depression of 1930s than even a great recession of uh 08 09 i think we're probably heading towards more protracted global downturn and what makes me think about this is there's also issues in europe and china so it's like all the major economies synchronously synchronously descending into some problems paradoxically i think europe will actually do the best because it took the brunt of it but it's now gonna probably be most aggressive fiscally and euro weakened and they just kind of created more inflationary conditions and but china and us are in a lot of trouble and I think it's going to be a very protracted one this time. Yeah. Is this the rationale for that statement you made that this economy can't sustain positive real rates? Yeah, I think the amount of global debt can no longer sustain positive real rates. Positive risk-free real. I think people are confusing interest rates with risk-free interest rates. I think risk-free interest rates should be negative. I think the natural risk-free interest rate is zero. Zero nominal. Yeah. And, and then people collapse when in, in what happens is when the risk free interest rates collapse in seeking yield, people really collapse the spreads, and that's when they get in trouble. So there's much in what you've described that I agree with. But you know, I'm I'm a natural it's easy to confuse me. I'm a simple pet man, right? Um and uh, I drink too much. So it's it's not difficult to confuse me. And one of the observations I'd have is I look at the world and I think in terms of financial capital, there's lots of it around. But in terms of real capital, a lot of the real capital we have is in China uh, or it's in the former Soviet Union. And we have systems of supply chains and systems of supply which uh, have been integrated those real assets into our global economy. Um, you said that nobody kind of got the supply side problem. Certainly the Fed didn't. But, you know, I hate to blow MI2's trumpet, but my colleague um, boss, Julian Brigden, did get the inflation problem, right? He did see it coming. And we actually put a paper out, I, I couldn't tell, 2018, 2019, where we described this, like, because there was a problem in foreign policy with China going back to 2016, US attitudes to China and foreign policy had already shifted. So uh, these supply chains were always going, you know, were always optimized to minimize the use of capital and minimize the degree of resiliency, quite the opposite to the supply chains we had during the Second World War. Um, when you have supply chains that have been optimized for 20, 30 years by people who, uh, whose educational background is in maximizing financial returns, you should assume that you do not have redundancy, that you, you have no resilience whatsoever, and that something is going to blow up at some point. And so I think 
we will need a huge amount of real investment in defence, for example. Like you can see that defence has become a political priority for all sorts of governments all over the world. Um, you can, and not just on our side, right? It's, you can't build up your armaments without it creating a, a race. So the Chinese are bound to want to build up their arms. The Russians will continue to spend God knows how much, what a proportion of GDP they've got on arms. Um, and you can see also that we're going to build a new uh, energy infrastructure all over Western Europe. Some of that will happen in North America too. This kind of demand for capital is, I wouldn't say unprecedented, but it's a long time since we've seen that kind of demand for capital. So isn't that an upward pressure on rates at the same time? Well, Demand for capital, I don't necessarily think of uh, as upward pressure on rates. However, I think all of this is a very good point. And I would add even on top of it, uh, well, you already talked about energy infrastructure, but the whole like green inflation, right? The yeah. whole yeah. energy infrastructure, which could be eventually deflationary, but very far away and clearly inflationary for the decay. Yes, those are all structural problems. And I will, and all those very good devil advocates arguments against my thesis. I think that's why if my thesis fails, that's probably gonna, some of the roots of its failure probably will be around those things that you described. I think it's a much bigger factor in Europe than in the US though. Sure. I think, and that's why I'm much less comfortable calling for deflation in Europe than in the US. I do think that two or three years from now, it's very possible that European interest rates will be higher than US interest rates. Yeah, I can easily see events lining up so that we get a euro down to something like 86 or something silly like that. And then, because I haven't seen it yet, you haven't seen European politicians announce this massive surge of investment. You've seen incremental increases in investment. I mean, part of it is the pipeline to the bandwidth for that investment isn't there. So it turns out investment spending is kind of like you can't scale it up at your own at, at will. You scale it up to the extent that you have the ability to scale it up, which can take a multiple years. Yeah, there's a lot of headwind there, but. The need is there to for all those things that you mentioned, larger military budgets, larger uh, complete rebuilding of energy infrastructure. And uh, I, I honestly, again, I will say I don't understand European politics. I don't know if anyone understands European politics fully, but that's a tangle. That's not elliptic curves. That's really hard. <laughs> no, it's easy. It's all, it's all self-interest. The problem is you've got to work out which group's in charge. That's the tricky yeah, thing. Uh, I'm again. I'm not going to try. All I'm going to say is that I think that there are some chances of that putting up with pressure. And I do. Th- I do think those structural changes, like changes that have to do with changing the supply chain and of sh- like reversal of offshoring, will put some upward inflationary pressures. But I think it's almost by definition of whatever those pressures are, Fed puts so much counter pressure to that. Right. Like right now, Fed almost exacerbated current supply pressures by being so hawkish. But eventually, two years from now, I don't think those infrastructural changes will be so rapid that they will overcome the current disinflationary pressure, like the current fallen demand that will that is that is happening. But that would be a good counter argument. There are going to be depending, and unfortunately, it also depends on U.S. politics. We could have more or less the stimulus bills. Could there will be some stimulus? There will be some bills. I don't know uh, which one. Like some some climate deals, 
all of those things will affect. Some of them will be incremental. Some will be huge. I don't think... I think I underestimated some of the past, like tax bills or whatever in US, like what impact they could have, at least short term. Long term, I think they had less impact, but short term, they had quite a bit of impact on markets. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. I figured it'd be good to talk about China a little bit because you mentioned that there are bad things happening in China. I think there are bad things happening in China. I think that real estate bust is significantly bigger than the real estate bust we experienced in 2008, 9, 10 in the United States. It's bigger because the bull market lasted for longer, was uninterrupted, and was of a bigger scale. And China's a bigger country, actually. I'd argue that China now is a bigger country than the United States, um, economically. If, I've, if I'm right, won't that create this huge deflationary force in China, which could potentially, like, at the same time that's happening, I'm seeing the US arguing, US executing policies, which are reducing the trading relationship with China. If this goes badly, I can see a scenario where we we are no longer trading as much with China and we have to rebuild our industrial base to replace the Chinese industrial base that we used to rent from them. We could have a situation where they have all the deflation, we have all the inflation. Is, is that not something that worries you? Well, you could see that side of the equation. But what I more see, I don't think like, because they have a bust, we're not going to trade with them. That factor was reducing offshore. In fact, they will be desperate to sell their stuff probably at cheaper prices if they're in a bust situation. Like I do think that the bust, first of all, I do think that bust, it has a chance of being bigger. And again, I'm not an expert, but this is my understanding. One of the reasons why their real estate problem is bigger than US real estate problem because they have so much vacancy. They've built a lot of stuff that they're not using, a lot of ghost buildings. Yeah. That's my understanding, a lot of infrastructure. And now that is all like imploding on itself, right? So, and they're having a tech uh, bust and um, uh, and uh, real estate bust, and we'll see. And they will be hurt by re- reversal of offshoring. Now, you, that is structurally, yes, reversal of offshoring will put some inflationary pressure in the US. And that's what I alluded to earlier, that those would be the strongest counter arguments to my thesis, my long-term thesis. But what I believe is the shock wave of China going into negative growth around the world, because China was for so long the growth growth engine, the shock wave of China producing negative growth, which it probably will because they will probably be heading towards negative population growth and everything right in the next two years, the population demographics are awful. Uh, so why would they have them? So, if China goes sideways economically, that will be a huge deflationary wave. Now, the, to add another layer to it, if they really go badly, they might decide to go to war, and that could be inflationary. Either between the, either start civil war or invade Taiwan or whatever. Sometimes when regimes are basically on the edge of economic collapse, they kind of make a desperate gamble of some kind. Yeah, it's all the foreigners' fault. Yeah, but so so who knows? There is just a lot of uncertainty there. But my central thesis is that China 
dramatic slowdown is probably already sending a deflationary wave around the world. It's like one of those, you know, like when uh, uh, two black holes collide 250 million light years away, we're not yet feeling it. The wave, the gravitational wave is going and we will feel it with our very fine instruments. It's not going to shake our bones, but that one will because it's on yeah. planet Earth. Yeah. Right? <laughs> It's not 250 million light years away. So I feel like that wave is going towards us and it might still go. And I think that will I think that will overwhelm because it will be a very strong global effect. I think it will create a very strong deflationary shock for Australian economy, potentially for Japanese economy, for other Asian economies. And it's just going to spread around uh, any commodity countries will probably feel that reversal in trends on commodity prices if it occurs. That all probably will lead to dollar staying strong in that environment. And uh, strong dollar will probably be deflationary for everybody in the US as well. Yeah, it's certainly, so I don't know how closely you watch EM, but what's been happening in EM suggests is suggestive of extremely tight dollar liquidity conditions globally already. The Fed's caused havoc like you're looking at argentinian yields but actually anywhere you look in the emerging markets there's mostly stress you're seeing very high uh, em yields you're seeing very cheap em equity and you're seeing declining living standards in lots of places i mean for me when i think of that chinese thing i think about two waves uh synchronizing the fed's deflationary tightening of u.s policy because you know too much inflation combined with the Chinese real estate bust, um, that could give you a pretty ugly uh, global. And so, I, you know, I'm, I'm 100% with you when you're saying that we may well end up targeting zero rates. And some of these deep out of the money, low rate ED strikes are pretty attractive, even if the vols are high, because it doesn't really matter if you're a ridiculously high vol when you're talking about a lottery ticket strike, 200 beeps out of the money. Ultimately, you're either going to be in or out. Well, you know what the interesting thing is that uh, when I was kind of trying to formulate my strategy in over the last few months of how to deal with this physical going to zero rates, indeed it was very different from 2018. In 2018 and 2019, I bought a lot of deep out of the money euro dollar auctions, and we had a um, interview. I had a on Real Vision this discussion with John Burbank, which became kind of legendary. I think about this. We had a conversation a few, and it made it into my book. Like we had actually a conversation in January 2019. I already had some of those calls, and he was like beginning to buy some deep out of the money euro dollar options, and it was super cheap. And we, I, I, I probably referred to that conversation along many times because it was kind of a big landmark, and that's why we did an interview on the Real Vision about this. That was a really insanely distorted ball surface, like the ball. Just given the range of outcomes, your calls are extremely cheap. Now they're extremely expensive. I actually do not think buying deep, very deep out of the money strikes is the right trade right now. Even if even if you think risk reward is good, I think there are better risk reward structures, and I'm not gonna right now lay out the structures. But uh, oh, oh uh, Alex, that's so unfair. Not all the way. Do your own homework, people. I'm not telling you what strikes I own or what strikes I go short. I I will point out that where 
it's, we've been in this weird environment that the rates are kept going higher and higher, but zero strikes, strikes that could only make money if rates go negative trading in a very significant premium. No, I, I think they're dumb for the US. I think they're dumb. I don't think they're going to go negative, but the market is pricing. Like it's just beginning to soften up a little bit, but the market has been pricing it as a very real probability. In, in some sense, it is probably correct probability. How to say those strikes are correctly or even cheaply priced relative to my view. But relative to where the market is now, this is often like a fallacy of option pricing. People say, oh, look, I'm going to buy this call on the stock, and if the stock rallies 30%, I'm going to make uh, five times X. So this call is cheap. I was like, of course, if you're correct about your view, if the stock rallies 30%, you have to, you'll make five times X. That's that's very easy, right? If you're right about a 30% sure. move in your favor, right? Uh, all options will look cheap if your view is correct. That's right. If, if, if Jesus tells you where the market's going to trade, everything's a good bet. Absolutely. Yeah, well, yeah every, every, every option will look too cheap, and you want to go as far deep on the money and the relative uh, leverage yourself as far as you want to. Yeah. The reality yeah. is that you're not always correct, and I think when trading options, you have to look at the vault surface and look what are the cheap, expensive points, and look at the range of outcomes and see how it's priced out of the range of outcomes. And if I see so much vault bunched at a range of outcomes which at negative rates, I actually don't think that it's very attractive to buy options there, betting on negative rates. I think we can probably contain this thing by just going to zero. Alex, I think, you know, th this is fantastic. I really enjoyed the convo, and for me, it was very helpful. I hope we weren't too technical. But I think sometimes we get the, the podcast is a little too easy for a little too trivial. How are you going to know when you've got, if the bond trade goes wrong? What What's the big tell? What would be the warning sign that actually get the hell out of duration, do not pass go, do not, you know? You know, I always have trouble ask, answering this question because you kind of know when you're wrong. Usually it's like your portfolio PL tells you that you're wrong and you have to reduce positions. Yeah. Often that happens before you change your mind. There are times when I change my mind on trades. It's, it's, it's very hard because when you have a very strong view, you actually don't, by definition, if I knew the mechanism by which my view will break down, I probably wouldn't, my view wouldn't be so strong. I think you just have to keep your eyes open and see what it is that might challenge your view. Like maybe like the job market, maybe like you have to keep looking at job markets. I think you have to keep looking at uh, a little bit at politics and what kind of uh, unionization, like what's happening in the way with wage pressure and how strange wage inflation is going how well consumers are continue to be doing. That might be like one thing to keep pausing. And maybe like any kind of very broad restructurings in the world and see how much traction this idea of infrastructure changes gets. But it's very difficult. You're just going to have to. The good thing is that, again, as I said, I'm no longer mumbling in the dark corner to myself. The bond trade started to go with having a very clear trend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're the idea, you can see uh, some kind of correspondence of traction in the real world. It's like like the world is listening to your mumblings in the dark. And I have a lot of experience with that, like when bonds are starting to rally, kind of death, like kind of gravity-defying rally, and people are saying, like, nah, they're not going to, bond market is crazy, why are they pricing easing in like the winter of 2023? It kind of tends to be right, except that it never prices enough easing. 
You know, the counterintuitive moves are always my favorite signal. It's always the bond market. So it's, it trips a spider sense. If you see something that doesn't make any sense, it's like when you see data, you see strong data on the economy and the bond market's rallying. Uh, that's a more significant sign that that is the right trade for me than almost anything else. I'm always interested in your views. So where do I find your views given, you know, I don't know, do you publish a blog or how would I look, look up what Alex, uh, Gurevich is currently thinking? Well, first of all, I'm very visible on Twitter, uh, agurevich23. Most people probably know me already on Twitter. I have a verified account, so you can kind of link up to everything I have through Twitter. I don't tweet a lot, but you can go from that to my company website, hauntind.com. Uh, there, are, there, is some, there are some pieces that are usually available for public. Most of it is behind the wall because it's for qualified purchasers. Sure. And for your customers as well. You cannot get into marketing materials without like quali- qualifying, but there is some stuff we have. And usually like you can kind of follow and reach out to me on Twitter. That's the best way. Excellent. Alex, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your views. Um, it's fascinating for me. I hope other people liked it too. Uh, thank you very much for having over. It was fun, by the way. I did. It, it was fun. <laughs> Without me even giving you that stupid uh, Russian <laughs> comment that I usually make. It's all right. We're going out. Спасибо большое. Спасибо большое. Спасибо. All right. That's a wrap on the next big trade. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, head over to realvision.com for financial insight you won't find anywhere else. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.